Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we chatted with an historian on authoritarian regimes, learned about IKEA, and discussed architecture's racial problems. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for December 7, 2018. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Milton Curry, dean of USC's School of Architecture. Curry spoke about race and representation in architecture, the power of institutions, and what architecture means to modern students. Buildings on Air airs the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with our guest. He's, he's on Skype with us. Um, Milton S.F. Curry, how's it going? Very good. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What, what are some of the successes and failures in, in sort of how this meets the ground? Um, what are some of the, the things you're trying? Uh, uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, without uh, just, again, studying the context, I think, and, and, and again, part of my ethos and our ethos at the school is, you know, a thousand flowers can bloom and, and there can be, you know, 10,000 debates. And I think right. that uh, there's so many res- respected institutions who are doing great work, the Art Institute of Chicago, um, the, you know, ASU uh, Design School, their new uh, Dean Rethinking kind of design education. So I think it's exciting, quite frankly, to have colleagues who are taking up the challenge across the country in, in certain ways and, and really being able to, to set a maybe a common framework to be able to really debate these issues yeah. amongst ourselves. Because, as you said, it's an experiment. Um, we're not going to be right. We don't have all the answers. But we really need to get, you know, into exercising our theoretical muscles around uh, debating these these topics um, uh, and and really coming up with some I don't want to say solutions, but um, observations that that are, right. that are actionable, right? So to get back to your question, uh, it's early days. Um, you know, you said you're an adjunct. I mean, we have uh, sixty over sixty percent of my faculty are part time. Uh, that you know they're they're part of the engine, the faculty or the engine that really drive the school. And so um, my job is is really uh, kind of nudger in chief to to nudge and to <laughs> yeah. kind of eyes and and not to say no, but to find ways to say yes. So um, in that sense, um, one of the things that 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 I've identified and observed as part of my career in teaching and and in administrating is, the modes of getting the knowledge exchange to happen, right? We mm-hmm. have six credit courses, three credit courses. We have design studio, you know, takes up 12 hours a week sometimes. We have three credit courses, three hours a week, four hours a week. And we teach those according to our logic uh, at, at USC. We have a semester system. One of the things I'm really interested in is getting uh, non-practitioners and practitioners um, into conversation with students and faculty in modes of knowledge exchange that may not fit into our conventional framework. So mm. whether that means uh, pairing things to studio, when I was at University of Michigan, uh, Monica Ponce Leon um, developed something called studio pairings where we were incentivizing uh, faculty to pair, let's say, a, a theory seminar or a history, th- history seminar with a studio that where the topics were compatible. Mm. Um, and I think that that was uh, that was successful to some degree, but it wasn't widely uh, uh, dealt with. It wasn't it wasn't widely uh, taken advantage of by the faculty. Mm. So thinking about how we can get um, you know residencies where we have artists, where we have civic activists, uh, civic leaders, uh, politicians, 
um, who may do workshops, who may do uh, uh, things where they're connecting to studio directly on a, on a basis of, you know, five or six times a semester, as opposed to, to coming in and teaching, you know, a conventional course uh, three hours a week for three credits. So we're looking at that. That's, that's more on the kind of the pragmatic side of how do you actually uh, get that, that knowledge exchange with people who, right. um, who are not um, accustomed to and maybe won't, wouldn't fit into the conventional teaching schedule um, in terms of how they're working in their, in their home institutions or in their lives. So that's one aspect. Um, and there are others, but, but that's, that's one aspect of trying to um, diversify the voices that students are hearing. So often on final reviews uh, that we all fly around the country to go to, you have, you know, 15 people in black suits uh, who've been to, to, you know, some of the best schools in the country, and it's one student up there presenting. And I think that model um, of the, the authority figures, the power structure, um, there's good things about it, but there's also negative things about it. And trying to kind of pull some of these tried and true techniques apart a little bit and ask questions is, is this really serving um, right. the purposes of, of how we want to teach and how we want to transfer knowledge to students. Um, our profession and discipline has been significantly diluted from, uh, diluted from, uh, from when I was even in school. The authority mm. of the architect yeah. um, really has, has dissipated on the one hand because uh, we haven't, we've been late to the game in, in some of these political social questions. Mm. Followers instead of leaders. We've been, uh, in the case of deconstruction, uh, we picked pieces that we liked and were comfortable, and then we didn't pick the pieces, identity uh, issues dealing with identity and race yeah. and gender. We didn't pick the pieces we didn't like. Uh, we followed those those heroic kind of theorists, and then here yeah. we are at a place where we don't have the, the intellectual tools to deal with issues that are really coming at us quite quickly. So I think the, the, the discipline of the profession has been diluted. We've also uh, not taken up the challenge theoretically and intellectually um, when and where we have needed to. So we're, we're playing catch up there. Mm. We haven't diversified the people who are delivering and teaching, delivering knowledge and teaching uh, our students and involved in that knowledge exchange. Yeah. So you have folks who, even with the best of intentions, have been educated with uh, ex extreme degrees of homogeneity, mm -hmm. both in terms of the, the peoples that, that have taught them, but also the ideas, the uh, openness to ideas, the openness to diverse uh, opinions, the openness to a diversity of geography and, and life background and life spheres. Yeah. That's all been homogenized for them, and now you know people like me are saying, uh, well, let's come on. Right. <laughs> let's talk to another generation, of, you know, this next generation of students who are, who are themselves more diverse than many yeah. of the faculties that we're seeing. So, we've got to do some work with our faculties to and our faculty to, um, to bring knowledge to them and to at the same time that we're educating our students, we're going to have to educate our faculty and getting comfortable with that, getting our faculty comfortable with that, and that it's not a, it's not a. Um, a penalty it's 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 a part of to use a cliche lifelong learning but right also has to be done simultaneously with students and in fact our students can teach faculty in some cases more so than the faculty yeah. can knowledge themselves so it's a really interesting dynamic that i think we should take up and and see as an opportunity 
In terms of on the ground, I, I think that there's so many issues where people, the compression is happening between the public saying, what does architecture have to do with me? Legitimate question. We've been designing yeah. 1%, 2%, 5%. Um, again, to some degree, uh, uh, because of forces that are beyond us. But I think it's it's a legitimate question for people to say, what is architecture doing for me? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I'm, I'm getting access to some cultural institutions, but in terms of housing, in terms of, of social institutions, I'm not seeing that level of design, here, right. you know, interact, in, me interacting with that. And so, legitimate question. Um, but then you have another question of, can't architects provide a unique kind of intellectual capital in issues like affordable housing, homelessness, mm -hmm. refugee crises, mm -hmm. um, patching back together urban landscapes and infrastructures that have been um, cordoned off and 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 marginalized um, environmental, uh, you know, issues, Hispanic communities. Um, can't architects help us think our way out of that? And so I think that we are coming to a compression of people saying, um, on the one hand, I don't see my interaction with architects um, in the same way that I see it with the 1% and the 5%. Right. But on the other hand, I see the need to have their intellectual capital address issues that are facing me in my daily lives. Right. And I, that's an opportunity for us to, again, to take it up, own it, and take the leadership position in some of these issues. Yeah. Chuck Mertz spoke to historian and author Sarah Churchwell about authoritarianism and the roots of Trump's America First ideology. Churchwell discusses America's long infatuation with fascists, its inward history at critical times, and what America First actually means. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. American dream doesn't mean what you think it means. And America First has some real scary origins that you likely don't realize. And it, when it comes to American exceptionalism, yeah, we don't get the meaning of that right either. Here to help give us context and what should be an ongoing discussion over what all these terms mean, scholar Sarah Churchwell is author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and The American Dream, which was named a Smithsonian Magazine Best History Book of 2018. Sarah, congratulations on being named one of the Smithsonian uh, Magazine's Best History Books of the Year. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I was delighted, as you might imagine. Sarah is professor, and now it's selling millions of copies every minute. <laughs> Sarah is professor of American literature and public understanding of the humanities at the University of London. Sarah's most recent book prior to Behold America was the 2014 work Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. And you can follow Sarah on Twitter. At Sarah Churchwell, you start by citing an 1895 oration in honor of President Ulysses S. Grant, which stated, O critic and cynic, dreamer and doubter, behold America as this day she stands before her history and her heroes. Again, this is 
1895. See her millions of people, her free institutions, her equal laws, her generous opportunities, her schoolhouses and her churches. You see misfortunes and defects, for not yet is fully realized the American dream. You surely see her mighty progress toward the fulfillment of her philosophy. How much were free institutions, equal laws, and generous opportunities seen as stepping stones to realizing the American dream at the turn of the century? Because I don't hear anything but the rags-to-riches American dream theme when it comes to the way we look at the American dream. Well, exactly right. And that was, that was my view, um, too. And, and that was what surprised me in doing this research, that, you know, we only talk about the American dream in terms of upward social mobility, as you say, rags to riches, individual opportunity and prosperity. And yet when you look at the, at the point at which the phrase emerged as a way to talk about, um, you know, a national value system, um, which was about 100 years ago, and the reason why I put that quotation at the front of the book that you just read and, and why I chose that phrase for my title is because it's actually one of the earliest instances that I found of the phrase the American dream being used to describe that kind of national value system. So A, it's a lot earlier than most historians thought, but much more importantly than when it happened was that in the first decades in which the phrase was used, basically up until the Second World War, it was consistently used in those ways, as, as you just described it, to talk about social justice, to talk about democracy, to talk about equality of opportunity. But those were the American dream. And the American dream wasn't about getting rich. In fact, some of the earliest examples I found of the phrase were concerns that this new phenomenon known as multimillionaires, because out of you know, out of the Gilded Age and the robber barons, you know, the industrialist tycoons were making so much money, they were becoming multimillionaires. And, and that was this new thing. Nobody had ever had that much money. So it's sort of like the way we talk about Bezos being, you know, the richest man in the world. And instead of saying that that was the realization of the American dream, they said that would be the death of the American dream, because that kind of private wealth would recreate an aristocracy. And that was what the American dream was supposed to be getting away from. So they said it was an un-American dream to, to have that kind of vast private wealth, because it would mean you only had opportunity for the few, and the American dream was of opportunity for the many. To, and I thought that was really, really surprising, and I thought it was worth bringing out. Yeah, so to what extent, then, is uh, inequality the enemy of the American dream? And what explains that the lack of concern from those on the right when it comes to inequality and its potential impact on the American dream. Well, exactly. And so th that's what's so interesting to me is that is that the, the phrase arose in debates about inequality, as it is now, but it was used on the opposite side of the argument. I never found a single instance of it being used to defend free market capitalism. And now, as you imply, it's basically used as synonymous with free market capitalism on the right. And they say things like, that, the, that any kind of regulated capitalism or social democracy is, anth is antithetical to the American dream, that it's antipathetic to the American dream. And it turns out, you know, and they say, oh, you know, that the American dream is absolutely opposed um, to that kind of social democracy because we have to have this kind of unfettered capitalism. And on the contrary, the phrase emerged in order to argue precisely for those kinds of reforms in order to protect, as I said, a minute ago, in order to protect opportunity for everyone and not just for the few. Um, as for why people on the right don't say that anymore, I mean, you know, we'd have to ask them, and your guess is as good as mine. But obviously what's happened is that they have 
um, over the over the decades, uh, you know, since the end of the Second World War and and the um, in the beginning of the Cold War, which is really when the meanings of the American dream started to shift, and definitely since. Reagan, when he really linked the idea of the American dream to that kind of unfettered capitalism, um, people have swallowed that logic wholesale, and they, you know, and they think that everything is down to the individual. They seem to think that, you know, I mean, you hear it. People who are very successful in America today will say that they made it entirely on their own. Um, and those of us who are progressives tend to counter by saying, well, no, because you had access to education, because you had access to, you know, you, you, you had, you know, safe roads and you weren't in, you know, living in a war zone and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't recognize that those kinds of social structures protected them and created various kinds of privileges and protected their own opportunities. So, you know, Americans, as, as I don't have to tell you, are encouraged to take credit for all of our own successes and not and not acknowledge the way in which our society might have helped us. And we're encouraged to blame others for their own failures and not to recognize the way in which our society might have disadvantaged them. And we're very, very bad as a country um, at, at acknowledging our own structural inequalities because we, we have such an investment in telling ourselves that we're the, the land of the free and the home of the brave and equality of opportunity and, and everybody has a chance and that's meritocracy. Um, and and then, you know, simply lie or in denial about the degree to which that just isn't true for so many of our citizens and the ways in which the people that we hold up as success stories, um, as individual success stories, are usually people who inherited vast privilege and indeed sometimes vast wealth. And you quote Donald Trump saying on June 16, 2015, while announcing his candidacy for president of the United States, Quote, sadly, the American dream is dead. And you mentioned how democratic equality and an economic, economic opportunity are not the same thing, but the American dream has for decades been used as if they are. In proclaiming the American dream dead, was Trump focusing on economics? And what is missed in our understanding of the American dream when we only view it as economic mobility and the possibility of going from rags to riches simply on merit of simply being good at whatever we do? Yeah, well, what's missed is, you know, the whole point about what America was supposed to be, you know, once upon a time, um, what we were supposed to be aspiring to, which was a which was a more perfect union, which was a better society, which was a place where, you know, social justice and um and you know democratic opportunity could be achieved and that we would have to work toward that. The recognition that that wasn't just there, that that was something that we would have to strive for because it was an ideal that we aspired toward. And that's why it was a dream. Nobody was saying we'd done it, and nobody was saying it was a guarantee or a promise. People were saying the, the only promise was that America was dedicated to, to trying to make that come true and that we had to keep doing better. Um, and along the way, we lost sight of that in a kind of you know, land grab for, for individual rich and, and for you know, competitive um, prizes. And you know, what, what's interesting to me is that the, the man who popularized the phrase the American dream, who was an historian in um, 1931, so, it, so, you know, I found earlier instances where it was used and you can see it start to emerge. But in 1931, it became this kind of national craze, really, because he wrote this bestseller and everybody started talking about the American dream. And what's really interesting about his book, which was called The Epic of America, is that he he was arguing in, in this same vein that the crash had happened and that the Great Depression had happened, of course, 31, he's writing from the depths of the Depression, that 
that had all come about because America had lost sight of its higher ideals and because people had stopped thinking about what was what would the good life be in a, in a broader and more you know aspirational sense and were only concerned with having a new car and you know he said living like an up to date department store um, and what I found really fascinating was that at the end of that book um, he gives an image of what he thinks. Um, he said he always thinks of whenever he thinks of the American dream. And it's the reading room at the Library of Congress. It's a public library. He says that to him is the purest symbol of the American dream, because it's a place, a public library is a place in which rich and poor, young and old, black and white, male and female can come together in a place of learning and self-betterment that is provided by self-government by people recognizing that it's in everybody's interest for them to help improve each other and themselves. And so he sees a public library as the greatest symbol of the American dream. And that's the kind of thing I mean, it made my eyebrows, you know, kind of fly up into my head. You know, it was like, can you imagine anybody today saying that a public library was the symbol of the American dream? But for the person who popularized it, it was. And that's the, that's the national conversation that we've lost sight of and that I wanted to remind us, um, all of us, that we used to dream differently. And in my view, we used to dream better. And you write that the American dream isn't dead either. We just have no idea what it means anymore. What does that lack of understanding of what it means anymore, what does that reveal either about the American dream or the state of the U.S. today when we don't know what American dream means anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's back to your point about about Trump saying that it's dead. If you have this very narrowly economic idea of it, and, you know, and, and, and what I take Trump to mean there is he doesn't even just mean economics, although, you know, that was playing to his audience and, and to, the, to the grievances of um, people who think that the American economy used to be good for them and isn't good for them anymore. And, you know, which is certainly true for a lot of people. I, I don't think anybody's denying that. The question is whether Trump is the right guy to help those people out. And, you know, in my view, that's, you know, pretty foolish um, bet. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to have any evidence in helping, it, you know, any interest in helping anybody but himself. But he's also someone who clearly is hearkening back to the kind of glory days of America in the 50s when people like him ran everything. And there's, so there's, there's a kind of element of that in it, too, this kind of social vision of Who's America? What kind of America? I mean, it was Martin Luther King in 1963, of course, in the famous I Have a Dream speech, who's talking about the fact that the American dream was only available to white people and that it had been systematically denied to black people. And in the 70s, during second wave feminism and the Stonewall movement, women and gay people started saying, wait, the American dream has not actually been very available to us. It's been denied to us in all kinds of ways. I mean, of course, women don't even get the franchise until 1920. So how can you say that people, that those people, that those citizens had access to the American dream if they couldn't even vote, let alone have full political legal power um, and, and, you know, power over their own bodies, which, of course, we're still fighting over. So I take it that when, when Trump and, and his, um, <laughs> I think of them as his minions, um, when they when they make references to the American dream being dead, they're not just talking about economic stagnation, although they are talking about that. But I, I take it that they're talking about, you know, some some more um, uh, idealized, nostalgic vision of the America that they like to think of um, from the 50s, and that and that they want that back. Um, and of course, they can't have it back; it's not coming back. So the 
the ways in which we have we've narrowed our own understandings of what our country could be. We've narrowed our own ambitions. And that's what, you know, I say in the book is that we've inherited this kind of diminished dream. And we've been told that all we should dream of is a nice house and a nice car. And, and, and that's all we should care about. And of course, I think what we're seeing right now in the energy on the left and the, and the politicization on the left is a real pushback against that idea. I mean, I'm obviously not alone in feeling that, you know, America needs to write its moral compass and to reestablish, you know, what it is that we think our national value system is. What are we dreaming of? Is it just riches? Well, that's no basis for a society. I mean, it just isn't. And you write that history rarely starts when we think it did it. It never seems to end when we think it should, nor does it tend to say what we think it will. The phrases American Dream and America First were born almost exactly a century ago and rapidly tangled over uh, capitalism, democracy, and race, the three fates always spinning America's destiny. And you talk about how we just don't have a discussion about what um, the American Dream means anymore, yet... There's also a lack of public debate or criticism of capitalism in the U.S. There's no questioning of the efficacy of re- representative democracy. And when discussing race, the conversation is often dismissed as playing the race card. So if these are, as you call them, the three fates always spinning America's destiny, then why is discussing them seemingly taboo? Or do we discuss them just not in a challenging way? Yeah, I would say probably more like the latter. I mean, of course, we do we do talk about race, but we just tend not to... I think we tend not to admit the depth of our failings, and we, we, you know, people, people are having, you know, always having debates about, you know, are you allowed to call somebody racist or who's racist or what does it mean to say that or, you know, Black Lives Matter is it all lives matter? So th- those kinds of things mean that race is always in the conversation. Um, but are we having a meaningful conversation about it in which we acknowledge the ways in which it has shaped our history and the ways in which it shapes the lives of so many people um, in, you know, in America today? And I think that we do have to have better conversations about white privilege, um, in my view, in particular. I mean, you know, I, I actually, you know, I don't know if you know, but I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago suburbs in Winnetka. And the, you know, the degree to which the, the kinds of opportunities that I had were made available to me because I come from a family with that have been educated for generations that had the you know educational opportunities over and over and over again um, and we tend you know kind of like what I was saying at the beginning about thinking that our successes belong to us alone um, well they don't and and the fact is is that most white prosperity in the United States was built on the back of slaves uh, of institutionalized slavery it just was. And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the fact that companies like Brooks Brothers, you know, which everybody still can go and buy from, and Brooks Brothers, you know, made their money out of slavery. And that then they, you know, they could, I'm not having a, you know, I'm not, having, I'm not attacking Brooks Brothers as such. There are lots and lots of companies in America of whom the same thing could be said. Lehman Brothers, um, you know, goes on and on. And I mean, they don't exist anymore, but you know what I mean? That these companies that were successful for so long and that they could then, you know, their kids and their employees and all of those people would benefit from that prosperity without ever acknowledging the way in which it was also disadvantaging uh, um, the people who were descended from slaves. So, you know, I do think we have to tell the truth about that. And I think it's very important that we recognize that the phrase America first, which uh, Trump has decided to bring, you know, very much back into the forefront of the national conversation is not an innocent patriotic slogan. It has it comes with an enormous amount of baggage and a huge huge history 
of white nationalism and eugenicist policies, specifically eugenicist policies, white supremacist policies, looking at keeping uh, citizenship rights and privilege um, accessible only to uh, to you know so-called Anglo-Saxon or uh, you know white Americans, and uh, not only denying those rights to Black Americans, but of course also these groups were anti-Semitic and they were anti-immigrant, very very uh, um, rabidly uh, xenophobic, and the the kinds of policies that they passed in the name of America First in the uh, teens and twenties in particular. And the ways in which the rise of the KKK in the 1920s, um, which, you know, had had much more uh, uh, influence in mainstream politics than I think a lot of Americans still appreciate. Again, it's something that we we don't teach uh, ourselves very well and we don't look at squarely um, the the truth about that history. And the fact is, is that all of those groups and those uh, um, and and those uh, um, their, their violence and their violent rhetoric and their physical violence um, and threats and intimidation and in many cases of course um, actual um, murder and and that those all of those sorts of um, uh, you know activities and behaviors and and um, and in some cases atrocities were associated with America First. That was their slogan. So it just has this huge baggage, and nobody wants to talk about it. And all they talk about is the degree to which Charles Lindbergh used it in 1940, and it was associated with um, uh, debates about whether we should enter the Second World War and you know, associated, therefore, with the potential for Nazi appeasement. But it wasn't just about how we viewed Europe. It was about how we behaved to American citizens at home. And America First was a, a code. Um, and, and that's what I try to show in the book, is that it was very clearly a code. Here's what it meant. And that there's an awful lot of evidence to say that Trump and the people around him know exactly what that phrase means, and they didn't pick it by accident. Size matters, size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. What's this? I'm going to teach you how the recorder works, Kyle. No, it looks like I got the aptitude for such technologically advanced learning. Jamie, want another one? Yeah, Eric, thanks. Kyle? Nah, I'm good. You don't look good. His producer quit on him. No, I mean, he looks like he's had a few, but he hasn't ordered anything from me today. No, no, I ain't done what you think I done. What are you talking about? Sometimes he BYOBs. You got anything to hand over? I've been coming here since before the Mashuski tribe called this place their own, mind you. Ah, whatever, Kyle. Listen, Kyle, I know you miss John, but you need to focus on size matters. Yeah, more like nothing matters. Stop it. I know someone who would love to... Here you go, Jamie. Thanks, Eric. Listen, I I know someone who would love to help out, but you need to be a little more independent. Before you throw out the ultimatum, gotta do something while old banana brain ain't looking. Yeah, that's it. Did you just take a swig out of a medicine bottle? Yeah, don't say nothing to nobody. I got my lumpin' bubbles in here. Lumpin' bubbles? Yeah, lump... Are you not familiar with the canon? Lumpin' Bubbles, my very own concoction, as heard on Size Matters Episode 3. Go back and listen to it. It smells like dish soap. That mostly is. It doubles as bubble fluid for children and a discreet adult drink. You are drunk, aren't you? Oh, good question, Uh, Jamie. He's actually entered an altered state of emotional consciousness. And I told him if he ever brings a hooch in here again, I would ban him for life. Whose life? You ain't seen nothing. 
I've been standing right over this the whole time. Yeah, way to be a creep. Kyle doesn't want to learn how to use the portable. He's right. I don't. You're upset about John, aren't you? Yeah, I was. Dude, move on, man. Get out there and learn how this stupid little recorder works and record stuff. I don't know. I do. I'm going to do the dumbest thing since opening my own radio station. I'm going to let you pick the next producer for Size Matters. Whoa, 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 Ed, no, that's that's a little too much control here. No, it isn't. It's Kyle's turn to prove himself. That's right, I can do it. (laughs) He just burped up a bubble, look. Sorry, I just... Oh, no, don't pop the bubble. Code 74. Uh, Code 74. This is not a drill, people. No one. Pop the bubble. Continue to the exit. Just please exit the bar. Take care of it. I got it. Do not pop the... I got it. Oh, Oh, my God. What is that stuff? My nostrils are burning. What did I say? Just move. Get out of my way. This week on The Trump Diaries, the news begins to tighten around Trump's inner circle as Michael Cohen testified he lied in front of Congress, Ryan Zinke calls a congressman a drunk, George W. Bush passes away, Ivanka and Jared are at odds, and did Trump tamper with a witness? These are The Trump Diaries. Day 679, November 29th, and a devastating development for Trump, his former lawyer Michael Cohen pled guilty to making false statements to Congress about the length and timing of Trump's ties with Russia. Cohen admitted he engaged in negotiations to build a Trump Tower in Moscow well into the 2016 presidential campaign. Cohen said he also coordinated messaging with a figure prosecutors identified as individual number one, which is criminal code for Trump. Trump has repeatedly denied business dealings in Russia, saying in 2016, quote, for the record, I have zero investments in Russia, and again in 2017, saying he had shied away from investing in Russia. Trump subsequently called Cohen a weak and not very smart person, claiming he is lying to get a reduced sentence. He also claimed that Rod Rosenstein, the Justice Department official in charge of the investigation, belongs in jail because he never should have picked a special counsel. Trump also canceled a planned meeting with Putin shortly after Cohen pled guilty. Federal agents raided the Chicago City Hall office of Trump's former tax lawyer, the powerful alderman Ed Burke. Burke worked for Trump for more than a decade, obtaining some $14 million in property tax relief for the Chicago Trump Tower. Trump told special counsel Robert Mueller in his written answers that Roger Stone didn't tell him about WikiLeaks, and that he was also not told about a 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Trump Jr., campaign officials, and a Russian lawyer who promised dirt on Hillary Clinton. Trump also said his responses were to the best of his recollection. Trump, of course, has previously claimed to have one of the great memories of all time. However, Trump made several calls from a blocked number in the middle of the night to Roger Stone during the 2016 campaign. Those call logs have been turned over to Mueller and they draw a direct line between Roger Stone and Trump. Roger Stone, of course, presented himself as a conduit to WikiLeaks. Trump told the New York Post that a pardon for Paul Manafort was not off the table. Quote, why would I take it off the table? The Senate Judiciary Committee canceled a hearing on judicial nominees. Jeff Flake is holding firm to his vow to vote against all judicial nominees on the floor and in committee unless Mitch McConnell schedules a vote on bipartisan special counsel legislation that would protect the Mueller investigation. Day 680, November 30th. The fallout from Michael Cohen's plea continued to rock Washington. Revealed in his plea was that the Trump Organization wanted to give Vladimir Putin a $50 million penthouse in the proposed Trump Tower Moscow. 
It is unclear if Trump knew about the offer. It is inconceivable, however, that he did not, given the scope of his involvement in that process. And Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. are now facing serious legal jeopardy. Trump Jr. and Ivanka were deeply involved in the Moscow Trump Tower project. It is unclear, however, that contract remained active. However, Trump Jr. testified in September of 2017 to Congress that talks surrounding a Trump Tower in Moscow concluded without a result at the end of 2014 and, quote, certainly not 2016. There was never a definitive end to it. It just died of deal fatigue. Trump Jr. also told the Senate he was only peripherally aware of Cohen's role. Those statements are clearly materially now untrue. Mueller is also focusing on Roger Stone and his role as a go-between for the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks. Mueller's team has obtained evidence that Stone may have known in advance about the release of the emails stolen from the Democratic National Committee. Investigators are also looking into potential witness intimidation by Stone. In an unusual memo, federal workers were warned that it may be illegal for them to discuss impeaching or resisting Trump. That memo was probably not enforceable due to the First Amendment. The USA, Canada, Mexico signed a new North American trade pact. It is unclear if the new pact can pass Congress, where bipartisan opposition to the lack of protections for workers remains a major obstacle. Ryan Zinke called a Democratic lawmaker a drunk, accusing Representative Raul Grijalva of using $50,000 in tax dollars as hush money to cover up his drunken and hostile behavior. Grijalva had publicly called on Zinke to resign. Zinke, of course, faces 18 separate ethics investigations. Zinke's outburst raised eyebrows in Washington, where Grijalva is effectively his incoming boss in the House. And former President George Herbert Walker Bush has died. The 41st president was 94. As a result of Bush's state burial, the House and the Senate plan to push the government shutdown deadline back two weeks and delay a fight over Trump's border wall until right before Christmas. That deadline was to be on the day that this program airs. Trump will now attend Bush's funeral as well. Day 681, December 1st. Trump is to formally notify Canada and Mexico that he is withdrawing from NAFTA. That move is an effort to force Congress to pass his new trade deal. He apparently does not mind that such a move would in fact destabilize the entire North American economy. World leaders of the G20 summit in Argentina released a joint statement reaffirming their commitment to fighting climate change. All leaders signed on except one. That was Trump. Also on the same day, the Trump administration approved five requests from companies to conduct seismic tests off the Atlantic shore. That testing had been refused under the Obama administration over fears could kill tens of thousands of dolphins, whales, and other marine animals. In addition, permits for oil and gas exploration in the Arctic were also issued. During a dinner meeting at the G20, the U.S. and China agreed to a truce in their trade war. Trump agreed to postpone $200 billion worth of tariffs on Chinese goods, while the Chinese agreed to purchase more U.S. goods. There were no further details of that deal. Trump also made time for an informal meeting with Vladimir Putin. He had canceled that meeting after Michael Cohen's guilty plea. Finally, Trump was also heard off camera saying, get me out of here, to an aide as he left the G20 stage, leaving the president of Argentina standing alone. He had been due to pose for a photo opportunity with President Mauricio Macri. Day 682, December 2nd. The weekend was dominated by Cohen's explosive plea, making the Sunday circuit. The top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee said the committee has made a number of referrals to Mueller's office for prosecution. Senator Mark Warner said that Cohen's plea contradicts Trump's multiple denials during the campaign that he did not have business leaks to Russia. Also, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee said that Trump was compromised by Russia. Representative Adam Schiff said, quote, there is now testimony, there is now a witness who confirms in the same way Michael Flynn was compromised, the president and his business are compromised. 
It means the president, whether he won or lost, was hoping to make money from Russia and was seeking at the same time to enlist the support of the Kremlin to make that money. Finally, the new chairman of the House Judiciary Committee said Cohen's cooperation is proof that Russia had leverage over Trump during the 2016 campaign. Representative Jerry Nadler added, quote, One question we have now, does the Kremlin still have a hold over him because of other lies they know about? Day 683, December 3rd. Trump congratulated former advisor Roger Stone for refusing to cooperate with Mueller, tweeting, quote, Nice to know that some people still have guts. Stone said on Sunday that, quote, there's no circumstances in which I would testify against the president. Stone is being investigated for his connections to WikiLeaks and Russia. An associate of his, Jerome Corsi, is likely to be indicted alongside him. That tweet from Trump immediately seemed to cross a line for witness tampering, which is a federal crime. Following Trump's tweet, George Conway replied, quote, witness tampering, file under 18 U.S.C. SS 1503-1512. That is the federal criminal statute relating to tampering with a witness, victim, or an informant. Conway is also the husband of Trump advisor, Kellyanne. Following that tweet, Trump's son, Eric Trump, said that George was being disrespectful to his own wife. Trump publicly called for a full and complete sentence for Michael Cohen. Cohen is arguing his cooperation with Mueller warranted a sentence of time served. Cohen has testified that he, quote, had lengthy, substantive conversations with a personal assistant to a Kremlin official and engaged in additional communications concerning the Moscow Trump Tower project as late as June 2016. And he also kept Trump apprised of these communications. Cohen is now scheduled to be sentenced on December 12th after pleading guilty to tax evasion, campaign finance violations, and lying to Congress. Trump tweeted that all of those charges were unrelated to Trump, which of course is blatantly untrue. And Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin are trying to thwart the result of the midterm elections that saw them lose every single race by introducing legislation limiting severely the power of the incoming Democratic governor. Lame duck lawmakers have rushed to prepare 40 separate bills without public comment that would effectively neuter the Democratic governor. Similar efforts are underway in Michigan and in North Carolina, where a long-running lawsuit against such actions still simmers. The move has been decried as another unconstitutional and blatant power grab by Republicans who have been unwilling to concede to election results. Day 684, December 4th. In a bizarre twist, Paul Manafort apparently tried to broker a deal with Ecuador to hand over Julian Assange in exchange for debt relief from the USA. In a meeting with Ecuador, Manafort initially was helping to broker a deal with China for debt relief, but the conversation turned to Ecuador's frustration with Assange's presence in their London embassy. Manafort suggested he could negotiate a deal for the handover of Assange, but the deal collapsed once it became known that Manafort was a central figure in the Mueller investigation. It is unknown if Trump knew of those conversations. Former VP Joe Biden said, I am the most qualified person in the country to be president. And said an announcement about his 2020 candidacy could come within six weeks. Diamond Joe is now widely expected to run against Trump. Mueller will today recommend a sentence for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Flynn pled guilty in December 2017 to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia. A federal judge said lawyers from Maryland and Washington can begin issuing subpoenas in a lawsuit that accuses Trump of violating the Emoluments Clause. That suit accuses Trump of using his luxury hotel in Washington to unconstitutionally profit from his office. It is the first time a lawsuit alleging a president violated the Constitution's anti-corruption clauses has advanced to the discovery stage. 20 to 25 subpoenas are said to be being issued. Trump wants to end federal subsidies and tax credits for all electric cars and renewable energy sources. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said, it's just going to end in the near future. I don't know whether it will end in 2020 or 2021. Trump also threatened to yank those credits from General Motors over the closure of five plants in North America. 
and former FBI Director James Comey will testify privately on Capitol Hill on Friday. Comey fought the subpoena but agreed to testify after receiving a promise that a transcript of his interview would be released publicly after 24 hours. 38% of Americans now approve of Trump's job performance. His numbers have remained static. These are the Trump Diaries. Brian Andrews and Jesse Melnid spoke to Susan Giles and Jeff Carter, two-thirds of a team presenting at the Chicago Cultural Center this month. Giles and Carter discussed the impact of IKEA, the pain of cultural erasure, tedium, and much more. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Welcome. Uh, and so we are here uh, to talk about uh, exhibition up at the Cultural Center, Tuned Mass. Uh, we're joined by Jeff Carter and Susan Giles. Uh, the show is actually a three-person show, also with uh, Fahim Majid, who's not here in studio with us today. Uh, welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having us. So the show is, uh, it's been up actually for a month or two now at the Cultural Center, but it's running through the holidays, so hopefully a lot more uh, people listening will get a chance to come in and check it out. Um, but let's just jump sort of straight into the show itself. If you could kind of, uh, if we went over to the Cultural Center right now, um, what would we walk in? What would we experience? Well, it's um, it's kind of three solo shows that are related, and I think this is a new approach for the Cultural Center to do it this way. So each of the three of us has our own room, um, and they all sort of uh, relate in terms of use of space or ideas about architecture, um, but they're also three really different shows at the same time. Um, so maybe I'll just start by talking about um, what you would see in mine. Great. Um, and... Oh, Okay, and so this is um, an exhibition of 3D prints and one very large laser-cut cardboard piece. All of the forms are, so it's a sculpture show, and all of the forms are 3D motion-captured gestures, hand gestures that people made while describing uh, different architectural aspects of the cultural center itself, which is a historic landmark building. Um, so uh, the 3D printed ones are of the scale that people used, uh, made when they made the gesture. Um, and the large one is, um, so the building used to be um, the Chicago Public Library. And um, so I interviewed a former librarian there who um, described for me this huge reference desk um, that used to be there. And so her gesture is the one that I chose to enlarge in the space. So. Maybe it's the scale that it used to be. So, so these are like volumetric time lapses, if you will, yes. sort of extended in 3D space that we get to experience. Yes. And what did you do to actually sort of create or capture those? Most most motion capture tends to be sort of point-based and sort of data shop-related. So how did you actually get that full sense of the volume? Well, um, yeah, taking those, um, the point clouds um, and trans, uh, kind of connecting those into lines and then creating a mesh over that. Um, in order to be able to make it into, so I was actually thinking of them like ribbons, right? Like so if our hand traced mm. a ribbon um, and then we could make that a little bit dimensional. That's how, sort of how they turned out. Fan fantastic, and maybe we can let Jeff in. So what's, uh, what would we experience when we come into your? Yeah, so the, um, the Chicago rooms, just to go back a bit, um, are three sequential rooms. Um, they're enormously tall. Uh, and uh, connected, you know, one room to the next through a pretty narrow doorway. Um, 
And so, as Susie mentioned, um, that kind of sets up this sort of uh, three separate spaces. Um, so mine is the first room. And uh, the first thing you'll see uh, upon entering the Chicago rooms is uh, one of my sculptures is sort of blocking the doorway. Um, and it's kind of aggressive. It's got umbrellas poking out. It's, it's um, bright orange with flashing lights. It's um, making noises. It's Something's making noises. moving inside of it. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it was meant to be kind of standoffish. Um, the curator, Greg Lunsford, really uh, kind of pushed me to almost completely block the doorway. You know, I kept pulling it back a little bit to, you know, make sure people didn't get poked on it. Um, yeah, usually but, it's the curator who's thinking exactly. about fire code or, or things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So he actually had to push me on that. Um, but the rest of the show, so um, my show is quite crowded uh, in comparison uh, to the other two. Um, my work f uh, for this particular show is about, um, I was thinking about protest barricades. That was sort of where the idea came from. Um, and so the sculptures are all made out of IKEA products. Um, every, which is something I've been doing for quite a while. Um, and my previous work had been focused a lot on uh, architecture and um, early modernism, but this was kind of a, a different uh, direction. And I got the idea by looking at uh, um, photographs of protest barricades that had been built uh, during the pro-democracy uh, student um, demonstrations in Hong Kong. Uh, and there were these amazing structures made out of um, bamboo lashed together into these big grids, um, you know, anchored down by trash cans. And um, I started thinking a lot about how that could be thought of as a form of architecture that's very spe site specific and very, you know, kind of immediate, reflective of the environment and the circumstances that are around it. Um, and so I sort of combined that with my thinking about IKEA, you know, the kind of globalized design aesthetic of IKEA and the way that it's the same everywhere, and imagined, I guess, now that I look back on the way the show turned out, there's five different sculptures that are um, um, altered uh, combinations of IKEA products that result in something that's kind of like a barricade. It's um, they look kind of haphazard. They take up a lot of space. They look kind of aggressive, um, and but you can still recognize them as as furniture. So, sort of um, imagining, you know, for example, what if there were some sort of a, a standardized DIY protest barricade, you know, that you could screw <laughs> together, you could go with by with a pictorial instructions. Put it, exactly, put it together with a hex key, kind of thing. I was very struck also actually this morning right after leaving that show there was an ad at the CTA station that uh, draws a connection between somebody standing in the, in the way of the, of the door with the, the sort of, not police barricade, but the, the red and or the orange and white standard A-frame ones. And I was thinking oh. about that immediately with that and then also with dib season emerging. Dibs. It was sort of like, right, the sort of vernacular architecture but then if it became formalized looking at one of those sculptures in one of those spaces. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something I, th you know, after looking at protest barricades and looking at different, the, the ones in Hong Kong got me started on this. And then thinking more about um, uh, looking at protest barricades, things that, you know, demonstrators have built in different cities and for different, different time periods. And then looking at things like dibs and um, uh, other sort of, as you said, vernacular kind of uh, um, bricolage things, um, other types of architecture um, that's more coercive, you know, things that try to compel people to behave in certain ways mm -hmm. um, or prevent people from doing certain things, um, you know, whether they're like unsanctioned, like a protest barricade or like, you know, more uh, sanctioned, you know, official, you know, like 
homeless, uh, homeless, um, anti-homeless benches, for example, you know, park benches that have knobs, things, and, knobs yeah. and right, stuff yeah. like that to keep people hostile from, architecture. Is that yeah. Hostile architecture. Yeah. 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 Which is just imagine being involved in that as your field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just having to use the word hostility so frequently and be like, <laughs> but, you like to make yeah. hostiles people to stay and be like, no, 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 no. hostile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Fahid's work also has some similar, uh, feelings in terms of the materiality using sort of chipboard and these other sort of uh, material products and things as well. Uh, his work's not here, but as, as this is sort of a larger group show, maybe we could give a little overview, at least what's in the third space. Yeah, so Fahim's room is sort of between ours, and um, it's hard to sort of, I wish he could talk about it himself, but um, they're these very colorful, um, like shim-like strips of wood that are um, Kool-Aid dyed colors. Um, and it's a it's a giant sort of lean-to. Um, and then, so that's the main structure that occupies the floor space. And then there's um, the board up in the window, the same material. It, you're thinking like particle board, like inexpensive building material. Um, and so because of the scale of the windows there, being several stories high, um, it looks uh, it looks awesome. It, I mean, and I mean, like you, you're sort of in awe of the scale of this, and um, it becomes uh, stained glass, like church, like. Yeah, it feels very cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, but it's the same material as the lean-to, um, and you're always aware of that material and that color at the same time. Um, we, when we did a gallery walkthrough um, with uh, Danny Schulman there, Fahim was talking about like, what is the minimum uh, you need to create safety, right? Mm. So a lean-to is the most minimal kind of a structure or to seal a window, um, to board it off, to create safety. Right, right. Um, Fantastic. So the exhibition is Tuned Mass, and it's available. You can it's on view at the Cultural Center through January sixth. Uh, and information about the exhibition uh, can be found at the Chicago Cultural Center website. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker. Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.